Our gracious God, again, we thank you for this day. We thank you for another week um, from your blessed hand and that opportunity to gather together this morning as brothers and sisters in Christ to worship you. And we pray, Lord, that your blessing would be on this hour as we continue to look at how we might become better interpreters. And we ask, Lord, that you bless um, Lori as she's teaching the little ones, that you be gracious to work in their hearts at young and tender ages as well, to bring them saving into yourself. Again, we thank you for this time. We ask that you would use it to um, grow us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray, amen. amen. I'll give this to... So welcome to class 13 of our continuing series on how, inter- how to interpret the Bible. And um, this is taken, the material, as have all the classes, is taken from a book entitled 40 Questions About Interpreting the Bible by Robert Plummer. Before we get into today's lesson, for those who were here last, year, last week, just a couple of review questions on your handout. Um, number one. Blank of blank books of the New Testament are letters. Anybody remember that? <laughs> New Testament, there are 27 books, so that's one of the answers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the book, yeah, the book actually says 22 of 27 are um, letters, or what's another letter for uh, another name for a letter? An epistle, yes. <clears throat> okay. Question two. These letters can f- feel like a blank conversation. Overheard conversation, but they are from blank to blank in actuality. From God to us. Amen. <laughs> so thank you, PJ, for last week teaching us on interpreting the letters. So we'll move into today's lesson Question 36, what does the Bible tell us about the future? It tells us a lot. Um, looking at our handout, eschatological teaching is tended to get, intended to give Christians hope in trial and encouragement to faithfulness. Others, however, who have never shown an interest in the Bible for any other reason sometimes are curious about eschatology. They want to know what the Bible has to say about end times and eternity. And unfortunately, they're willing to listen to a teacher who claims to explain the Bible's predictions of the future. And these false teachers capitalize on this widespread curiosity by spreading fantastical and unbiblical teaching. So in considering this topic, the place to start is with the clear truths of the Bible. So today we'll look at several clear teachings found in the scriptures and then mention a few that, where there are differing views and um, much speculation. So beginning first off, what the Bible clearly teaches about the future. The Bible does make numerous clear affirmations about the future. The list that follows is a list of scriptural teachings about the future that Bible-believing Christians can and do agree on. So the first teaching is that Jesus will come again in visible bodily form to consummate his eternal kingdom. Many New Testament passages affirm the second coming of Jesus. We'll look at a few here. The ones that are in bolded text we will read this morning. The others are, uh, if you would like to, you can look at it in your own time later. So Acts 1, 9 through 11. 
And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into the heavens as he went, behold, two men stood by them in the white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So this Jesus will come in the same way, will come again. First Thessalonians four, sixteen through 18. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of a trumpet of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Thank you. So the Lord will descend from heaven. So knowing that Jesus will come again, what are we as Christians to do while we await um, his return? And there are a couple of things. The first thing the author mentions is we are repeatedly told to be ready and to watch. Matthew 24, 42. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day the Lord is coming. Pretty clear. Stay awake. Luke twelve thirty seven to 40. <clears throat> it will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So be ready. We won't read the the First Thessalonians passage for time's sake this morning, even though it's bolded. But so some would see this watching as meaning that we are to uh, be staring at the sky, as the disciples were in the Acts one passage that we read, or making elaborate charts and calculations that speculate as to the timing of Jesus' coming. But what did Jesus say? We see in Mark 13, 32, Jesus says, But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So instead of speculating, we are to be watchful, we're to be awake and waiting for the Lord to come. And secondly, in addition to being watchful and ready, we are called to be faithful stewards of the time, abilities, and resources that the Lord has entrusted us to us and to faithfully serve him to the end. Let's look at Matthew 25, uh, 31 to 46 for this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? 
And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then you will, they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you do not do it to one of the least of these, you do not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. All right. Thank you. So we're to be about the work of helping others until the Lord returns. And Mark 13, 32 to 37 is another example. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Thank you. So we are to stay awake, each of us doing the work that the Lord has given, given us to do until he returns. A second thing that the Bible clearly states is that the, the return of Jesus will reveal the true state of men's hearts. So false professors will be revealed. There will be many false professors whom the Lord will turn away. Some verses dealing with this are Matthew 7, 15 and 16, and 21 to 23. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And then 16 says, you, are ga- you, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And one more, Matthew 13, 24 to 30. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. 
So when Jesus returns, the false professors will be revealed, but also the changed hearts of those who truly know the Lord will be made clear by the revelation of their spirit-directed words and deeds. The fruit of the Spirit will be seen in their lives. Uh, Matthew 3.8. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Okay. <laughs> Can't get much more succinct than that. Second Peter 1, 5 to 10. <laughs> For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfast and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For it is these qualities are yours and are increasing. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he has, or he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election or if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Okay. And First John 2, 3 through 6. One more. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Right. So not only will the false professors be revealed, but those who have truly been converted, believers will be revealed as well by their, their deeds, keeping the commandments and continuing the work, bearing fruit um, for the work of the kingdom. A third teaching that is clearly seen in the Bible is that between the time of Jesus' first and second coming, there will be a period of political, spiritual, and environmental turmoil. In Jesus' famous eschatological discourse, he describes the events between his first and second coming. So let's look at one of the accounts of this discourse in Luke 21. This is a long one, PJ. Sorry. <laughs> Luke 21, 7 to 36. <laughs> Never need to apologize for reading scripture. Okay. <laughs> and right. they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places, famines and pestilence. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds. Do not meditate, uh, minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for your name, my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. 
By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the seas and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know, and know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things take place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch, watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Thank you. So we see from these verses quite a list of things that is predicted during this time things such as political instability, religious deceivers, wars, famines, signs from heaven and signs in the heavens, earthquakes and persecution, the persecution of the followers of Christ. And a glance at a history book or the daily news feed will um, certainly demonstrate the accuracy of the Lord Jesus' prediction in this discourse. So we, would, we see that first one of the aspects of things that will become, take place between the first and second coming of Christ, all of this instability, <clears throat> and secondly, a major opponent of Christ, the Antichrist, or the man of lawlessness, will arise prior to Jesus' second coming. Uh, the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. If we want to look at 1 John 2.18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming... So now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So John says many antichrists have come, but John seems to indicate that a final archdeponent of Christ was still expected. We see it, 2 John uh, 1, 7. Uh, for many, deceive, uh, many deceivers have gone out into the world those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. And similarly, Paul uh, says that the secret power of lawlessness is already at work in the world, even though the final man of lawlessness is still anticipated. If we can look at 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 9, we can see what Paul is saying in this regard. <clears throat> 
2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 9. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when... I was with you, I used to tell you these things, and now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. Do you want verse 10 also? And in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Okay, thank you. So I'm sure you've all heard, and history is replete with various evil leaders and dictators that have been labeled the lawless man, man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. But what time has repeatedly proven every one of those conjectures wrong. So that should caution us against conjectures in our day today. So. Uh, between the coming of Je- first and second coming of Jesus, we see massive political, religious, social, environmental upheaval and turmoil, and uh, the man of lawlessness coming. And the fourth thing, fourth issue that the Bible is clear about uh, the future is one day all persons will be resurrected and judged and will enter into an eternal, unchangeable state of glory or damnation. Although some details as to what happens between death and judgment are debated, the scriptures seem to teach the following sequence. So first, when one dies in Christ, his soul or spirit goes to be with the Lord. And if we could look at Luke um, 23, 39 to 43. One of the criminals who were hanging railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not know, God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justify, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. So today you'll be with me in paradise. <clears throat> Next in the sequence is one dying without Christ goes immediately to a place of torment. And we can see this in Luke 16, verses 19 through 25. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate laid a poor man named Lazarus, 
covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. So those dying in Christ are in paradise. Those dying outside of Christ are in Hades, being in torment, in anguish. Next in the sequence, when Christ returns, the bodies of all persons who have died will be resurrected. John five twenty eight and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resur- resurrection of judgment. Okay. So the resurrection, resurrection, next in the sequence, all persons, those formerly deceased and those still living at Christ's return, will stand before the eternal judge going either to eternal bliss in his presence or eternal torment in his absence, Matthew sixteen twenty seven. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Okay, and Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, on presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and, the, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged each one of them according to what they had done then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire this is the second death the lake of fire and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life he was thrown into the lake of fire so each person will be judged according to what he has done the dead will be judged by what was written in the books according to what they have done Those whose names are found in the book of life are welcomed in in by the judge. Those whose names are not found in the book of life are thrown into the lake of fire. Lastly, in this sequence, those justified by Christ will be given glorified bodies and enter into eternal bliss in God's presence. Revelation uh, 7, it says 9 through 14. Let's go ahead and read through 17, if you don't mind. Revelation 7, 9 through 17. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. So those justified in Christ will enjoy eternal bliss in the presence of God, in the presence of the lamb, being protected, being made provision for by God. So we've looked at four eschatological issues clearly presented in the Bible that Bible-believing Christians can agree on. However, this is not the case with all portions of Scripture dealing with the end times. Um, there are eschatological issues about which Bible-believing Christians disagree. I know that might be a shock to some of you, but... <laughs> but, in fact, there's much disagreement on issues such as the rapture, how to interpret the book of Revelation, the millennium, and the literal nation of Israel in relation to the end times. Thus, one of the greatest needs when discussing eschatology is humility. Concerning these issues, we should seek to keep a proper perspective, not elevating a minor issue to a major one or making a litmus test out of debatable doctrine. This does not mean that we cannot and should not have convictions on debatable matters, but we must recognize our finitude and the lack of explicit clarity in the Bible on these eschatological issues. And the author of our book cites an excellent quote from uh, a man named T.C. Hammond in his book, In Understanding Be Men, an Introductory Handbook of Christian Doctrine. T.C. Hammond writes, Much harm has been done by well-meaning but incautious zealots who have allowed their enthusiasm to run riot in wild and dogmatic assertions upon points where dogmatism is impossible. Still more harm has been done by those who have seized upon certain isolated texts and woven around them doctrines which are inconsistent with the rest of Scripture. So, in these matters where there is much disagreement, we need to exercise humility. PJ? <laughs> it's better be a halfway decent thought for that long of a walk, but um, <laughs> yeah, I, I tend to think of this topic. I, it's something that um, I, I just naturally think of the example of when I was a kid and my parents would ask me to do something, or I experienced this with my kids, certainly, and your immediate ask response is, why? Like, you don't, God tells you to do something. So in this case, you, you took us through really well how God is commanding us how to behave and to act and all these things we must do if we love God, um, and yet here we are trying to look at the context of various things and trying to figure out the why rather than obsessing over what it is 
God has called us to do and told us to do and obeying in the first place. And so <clears throat> I also think that when, when you have these passages about even Christ not knowing some of this information, it just makes you go, why then are there church groups that just divide and, or obsess over this one theological issue? It just doesn't make sense to me rather than what's clear is God has given us a command and, and to obey. So um, I, I really appreciate the way you've laid this out, but um, I, I still struggle with how this can be such a strong divisional item for, for so many people, uh, despite what I think is rather clear instruction that we need to just obey and do what God commands, even if we don't know. Right. Well, I mean, we live in a fallen world. People have sinful hearts. And uh, a, a, the, mo the major part of that, I'm sure, is pride. <laughs> hey, Mark, uh, you know, it's neat that the framers of the 1689 didn't say what eschatological belief you had to hold to. They, they foresaw this argument. And there's a hermeneutic that will get you to one or the other. And we just, this is not one to divide over. We don't know the future um, to the exactness, right. or at least we can have, agree that we can have disagreement in it. So. Right. So if you have questions in this area, ask Nick and Pete. <laughs> so we've looked at eschatological issues clearly presented in the Bible, those we agree on, those that there is much um, disagreement and debate. So we'll spend the re remainder of our time looking at the last question, question 37. How can I use the Bible in daily devotions or practical steps for studying the Bible? In our study these past 13 weeks, we've been learning principles that help us be better interpreters of the Bible. And this last question presents practical steps to use in studying the Bible so that we can do that. The author presents a number of topics to consider when studying the Bible. The first is why you should read the Bible daily. To be a sincere, growing Christian demands that we hear, think, about the Word of God, hear and think on the Word of God, and there's no more efficient way to hear and think on the Word of God than to be reading in ourselves daily. Let's look at Psalm 1, verses 1 through 4. Blessed is the man who walks not in count the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law that he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are so not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Okay, so we see two ways of living here. The person who knows and meditates on the scripture will be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields in its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Whereas persons who allow the wicked world to dictate their values are like chaff that the wind blows away. So we need to ask ourselves, which kind of person do we want to be? Which camp do we want to be in? And we don't have time to read it, but Jesus painted a similar picture in Matthew 7, 24 to 27, where he talks about the, gives the parable of the wise and the foolish builders. A foolish man built his house on sand, Wise man built his house on the stone foundation. When the strong, corms, strong storms came, what happened? House on sand collapsed. The house on the rock stood firm. Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man 
who built his house on the rock. Again, we need to ask ourselves, what kind of person do we want to be? And living in the age that we do, we live in an age of distraction. And because of that, we need to strive to make daily reading of the Bible a habit. We need to pray, actually, for divine assistance to form a lasting habit of daily reading the Bible in ourselves and in our children. Of interest to every parent is a finding presented in a recent study by LifeWay Research. This study confirmed that one of the main predictors of a teenager not leaving the church when he or she grows older is the practice of personal Bible reading. So how important is that to our children and grandchildren? So first thing we need to do is read our Bibles daily. Next consideration is read a good translation. Our brother PJ walked us through this consideration when he taught on question seven. Any modern, uh, major modern translations such as the ESV or the NIV or the NASB or the NLT translation should be accurate and safe and reliable to use. Another consideration is how much to read, and the short answer is as much as you can. <laughs> if you've not yet formed a habit of daily Bible reading, start slowly with an amount that you can successfully do, at, uh, be successful at reading every day. The author says, don't let the perfect Bible reading plan be the enemy of the attainable good plan. There are many good reading plans and apps that you can use to grow in this discipline. I know many of us here at Redeemer are profiting from using the YouVersion app and reading the Bible plans uh, produced by the Bible Project. Those have been very profitable. And as we read our Bibles, as our Bible reading habits grow over time, we should hopefully see our reading mature in a couple of different expressions. We hopefully will be reading longer portions of Scripture, reading reading more of the Bible at a time, and also doing closer Uh, close smaller studies, so in-depth dives into portions of scripture that as we read the long portions we say, hey, I want to learn more about this. So read as much as we can. How to read? Um, The author mentions this um, method, the OIA method, has been long recommended for personal Bible study. Abbreviations stand for observation, interpretation, and application. Thus, we begin the study by carefully observing what the, observing what the Bible says. Next, we explore and, or interpret it, interpret it, try to determine the meaning. We ask, why did the author write this? Give us these details. What did he intend for the original audience to believe and to do in hearing it? Finally, we ask what the teacher teaching applies to our life or culture in our context, the application. How can we apply what we've read? And another devotional reading approach that the author mentions consists of asking the following three questions about a passage we read. What does the passage tell us about God? What does the passage tell us about humanity? What does the biblical author want me to respond to in his teaching about God and humanity? That is, what specific expressions of repentance, faith, and obedience is he expecting? Another consideration the author lists is should you use devotional books? And this one might surprise you. The author says probably not (laughs) unless it is one that presents a careful, measured consideration of the inspired author's meaning faithfully interpreted within the entire canonical flow of Scripture, such as D.A. Carson's For the Love of God. And the reason the author says probably not to using devotionals, uh, devotionals 
He says, even though there are excellent devotionals in publication, many of the devotionals out there contain a great deal of non-biblical fluff, and even devotionals written by very respected historical figures or prominent living Christians sometimes veer into stream-of-consciousness reflections rather than focusing on the Word. That's why the only one that he recommends wholeheartedly is the D.A. Carson for the Love of God, and I've included the, the URLs at the bottom in the footnote for the two volumes of D.A. Carson's um, devotional. You can just type, type those two URLs into your browser and the PDF file will come up and you can read it or you can store it away. It's completely free to be used as you would, you would want to. And the final thing that the author mentions, consideration, is should you use a study Bible or commentary? He says, yes, if they don't stand in the way of you actually reading, thinking on, and praying and responding to the Bible yourself. So today we've looked at what the Bible tells us about the future by considering a number of topics that Bible-believing Christians can agree on, and that it clearly teaches and about the future, and also mentioning a few issues where there's much disagreement among believing Christians. We also considered a number of practical things to consider when studying our Bibles. As I mentioned, this is the last class in this series. Uh, next, we're going to be going through, our brother Nick's going to kick us off and lead us through this book, Do You Believe? It's a Paul, Paul David Tripp book, 12 Historic Doctrines to Change Your Everyday Life. So there are 24 chapters, uh, 12 dealing with the doctrine, the chapter following dealing with how we should apply that in our lives, what it should mean for our lives. And since this is the last class in the series on interpreting the Bible, uh, we've got a couple minutes. I wanted to leave a few minutes, time for anyone who would like to share anything that they've learned in the class that they uh, believe will profit them in going forward as far as interpreting and um, that will help them in the future. Uh, as Bible studies, studiers and interpreters. So does anybody have anything they want to share that they've learned from this class that um, will be a profit to them going forward? Paul? I just wanted to comment on the uh, question about what good Bibles to to use <clears throat> that uh, PJ talked about some time back. But <clears throat> the two Bibles that the book talks about steering away from are the ones that have been changed by groups like the, the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses. Mm -hmm. Right. On that, that topic of literacy, um, as it relates to devotionals, if some of you may... I've been given the gift. If you have, um, I would recommend you do not read Sarah Young's Jesus Calling. And if you have a question about that, please feel free to come see me. There's a, there's a lot of error and uh, whatnot in those. And, yeah. I want to make you aware of that. PJ? <coughs> Yeah, I, th I think in the overall, the goal of the book is trying to teach us how to interpret. And I, I think along with the devotional books, um, 
it's just there is so much value in the struggle. Um, devotional books can a lot of times, you know, I got my devotions done because someone gave you a, an answer or a little thing typed out. But I, I think the reason we went through all these questions is because we're hoping to become better readers of Scripture without other resources, at least to start with, and to struggle with the Scripture, to wrestle through it, then go to Christian brothers and sisters, and then go to, to resources. And so I think if I'm taking one thing away from this, besides all the wonderful hermeneutics, I, I think it's going to be the, to just get in Scripture and struggle with it and, and make sure then check your understanding and make sure you're applying some of these sound principles to it. Amen. We're to be, be to Bereans. One more comment, and then I'll close in prayer. <laughs> Since we're ending on end times, one of the things <laughs> that can make it simple is to think of the gospel. When we're sharing the gospel with someone, when we're preaching the gospel, we're talking about revelation. We're talking about revealing Christ and who he is and what he's done. We're telling men that it's appointed unto a man once to die and then the judgment. When we're preaching the gospel, we're talking about not only what has been done, but what will be done. That Christ is coming back with his angels in flaming fire. That unless you repent, you will likewise perish. So the spirit of prophecy is... Jesus Christ, Revelation says. And so it's a message of hope, and it's a message of fear. It's a message of warning, and yet it's a message of reward, reward that Christ has secured that he gives to his people. So as we preach the gospel, uh, it, is the, it is the ultimate, clear, agreeable part of Revelation that there is no debate about and that we can have solace in. Amen. Thank you. Let's go ahead and close our time in prayer. <clears throat> Gracious God, again, we thank you for this day. We thank you for men who have written books with um, considerations, things for us, principles for us to consider, to apply in our lives. We pray, O oh God, that you would help us to be men and women of your word, of the Holy Scriptures, that we would be Bereans, that we would be those who uh, learn and study, and, O oh God, the Holy Spirit, that you would enlighten us, that we might, uh, as we read, we might uh, be reading truth as you have desired for us to receive it, and that we would go and apply it in our lives, and we do pray. We thank you for that glorious gospel that indeed encapsulates everything about past, present, and future that the Bible has to say and has said in truth, and that we can proclaim that to others. Bless the rest of our uh, time before the service, and we ask your special blessing upon the service, O oh God, the Holy Spirit, that you might be here in a powerful way. Speak through our brother and our pastor, Nick, to our hearts, that we might be changed more into the image of your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.